Good evening and welcome. I'm Amna Nawaz. Jeff Bennett is on assignment on the news hour tonight. President Biden makes a surprise visit to Ukraine, pledging further military support as the one-year anniversary of Russia's devastating invasion approaches. Teenage girls in the United States experience record high levels of violence and sadness in the wake of the pandemic. Schools need to be a really critical part of how we address this. You know, many of us have said that we can't simply treat our way out of this youth mental health crisis. And the future of abortion access and voting rights in Wisconsin face a critical test as voters decide the next state Supreme Court. President Biden has arrived in Poland tonight after making an unannounced visit to Kyiv, just days ahead of the one-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. The administration says it informed Moscow before Biden arrived. This marks the first visit by a U.S. president to Ukraine in 14 years. With the support of the Pulitzer Center, Nick Schifrin reports from Kyiv. At the end of a 5,000-mile journey, Commander-in-Chief visited a capital at war to provide an embattled country a show of solidarity. On the right, the leader who one year ago refused a U.S. offer to evacuate, wearing trademark olive drab. On the left, the leader who became Ukraine's most important supporter, wearing a tie striped with Ukraine's national colors. I'm here to show our unwavering support for the nation's independence, their sovereignty, and, uh, and territorial integrity. The administration today called President Biden's visit unprecedented in modern times to a war zone without a significant U.S. military presence. Russia launched its full-scale invasion 361 days ago. President Biden remembered it seemed dire. One year ago, the world was literally at the time bracing for the fall of Kyiv, perhaps even the end of Ukraine. You know, one year later, Kyiv stands, and Ukraine stands, democracy stands, the Americans stands with you, and the world stands with you. Kyiv has captured a part of my heart, I must say. We can and we must ensure that 2023 becomes the year of victory, with the liberation of Ukrainian land from Russian occupation, with solid guarantees of long-term security of our country, Europe, and the entire world. But while the U.S. today announced another $500 million package of weapons transfers, it did not include long-range weapons that Zelensky once again requested. Such an important package is an unmistakable signal that Russian revenge attempts would have no chance. The U.S. informed Moscow of Biden's travel, but still Moscow scrambled jets, triggering Ukraine's air raid sirens. It came during a visit to St. Michael's Cathedral, which became a sanctuary during the 2014 protests known as the Revolution of Dignity. On this date every year, Ukraine remembers the more than 100 protesters killed nine years ago, helping evict a pro-Russian president. Today, Biden and Zelensky remembered the more than 4,500 soldiers killed since then, fighting Russia. Thank you for letting me back. Inside, Zelensky and Biden met with Orthodox Church of Ukraine leaders, who've helped forge an independent religious identity distinct from Russia. And even in a country at war, there was time for a quiet moment. This was the scene outside during that portion of the visit. This is as close as we could get, about 600 or 700 feet away. There was unprecedented security here in the center of Kyiv. This is usually a bustling street. The city center was locked down and mobile and internet service cut off around Biden. The presidential convoy drove quickly through empty streets. Biden is no stranger to Kyiv. He visited some of these same sites back in 2014 after Russia's initial invasion. But his trip today, right before a sad milestone, was the trip Zelensky and his team wanted most. Freedom is priceless. It's worth fighting for for as long as it takes. And that's how long we're going to be with you, Mr. President, for as long as it takes. 
And Nick joins me now from Kyiv. Nick, it's good to see you. As you know, it's no small task to move the president of the United States thousands of miles into a war zone in secret. What do we know about the planning and the execution of this historic trip? It was a trip that uh, was kept secret from all but the senior officials in each agency who was actually planning the trip. And the pool reporters who accompanied Biden along the way report that President Biden left Washington, D.C. at 4 a.m. on Sunday in a smaller than normal plane that had been kept darkened and off to the side. He landed in eastern Poland, drove to the border, and then took a nine and a half hour train to Kiev. He had to take a train, of course, because the airspace here has been closed since last February. And that is the train he took uh, arriving back to Poland from Ukraine tonight. It's the same route that we all take, that all previous heads of state and government have taken for the last year. But this um, is definitely not the same train the rest of us take. Take a look at this photo. President Biden, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, even had an office. U.S. officials say that it took them months of meticulous planning to get Biden safely here. Nick, this trip comes at a critical time. We're nearing the one-year mark in this war. What do we know about what the discussions unfolded, uh, how they unfolded between President Biden and President Zelensky? What did they talk about? It's a critical moment, not only because of that anniversary you just mentioned, Amna, but because the fighting has already increased across Ukraine's east uh, and is expected to intensify. Uh, Russian forces, according to U.S. and Ukrainian officials we speak to, have already launched an offensive with the goal of capturing all of Donetsk province. The fighting's focused around Bakhmut, but spreads north and south from there across 100 miles. And the president's also discussed Ukraine's plans for a counteroffensive uh, expected in the coming weeks in the south of the country. And U.S. officials I speak to uh, about that counteroffensive are split uh, on the chances of success, but the administration officials uh, who are helping plan uh, the next few weeks in Ukraine believe that new training and new armored vehicles coming to Ukraine uh, should give Kyiv the ability to create at least local advantages uh, along the front line in the south, where Russian troops have really been digging in uh, for many, many months. But where U.S. and Ukrainian officials do not agree, Amna, those long-range weapons that we reported in the story that Zelensky once again asked for and that, as of now, the U.S. is still refusing to provide. Nick, in the meantime, in the last couple of days, we have heard from Vice President Harris, from Secretary Blinken, uh, public calls warning China against supplying lethal aid to Russia. What's behind that? What should we know? Yeah, that warning came from Antony Blinken three separate times uh, this weekend in public uh, and also during a meeting that he had with China's top diplomat Wang Yi at the Munich Security Conference. U.S. officials are concerned because, according to congressional officials I speak to, Chinese companies have begun to send dual-use technology, including uh, surveillance items, to the Wagner paramilitary group that is leading the fighting in Bakhmut uh, and to the Ministry of Defense. Uh, a senior U.S. official told me that Beijing was like quote, looking away from these sales. Uh, and so what U.S. officials are trying to do is to make sure that this dual-use technology isn't passed through more official channels, as in Beijing would actually authorize the dual-use technology from being sent, but also that step that you mentioned, Amna, that Beijing doesn't cross the threshold and send lethal aid send weapons to Russia. Uh, obviously, in the short term, the U.S. doesn't want to see uh, anyone help Russia uh, in these crucial weeks and months in Ukraine. But long term, the U.S. believes that its export controls on Moscow will cripple the Russian military in the next few years. Uh, and one of the few avenues uh, that Russia could turn to to bail it out and still feel the modern military is Beijing. Um, and that is what the U.S. does not want to see happen. Nick Schifrin reporting tonight from Kiev. Nick, good to see you. Thank you. Thanks, Emma. In the day's other headlines, a new late-night earthquake touched off more terror across the Turkey-Syria border region. At least three people died and more than 200 were hurt. It was centered in southern Turkey and was less intense than the quake that killed 46,000 people two weeks ago, but it was still felt hundreds of miles away. Officials reported more buildings collapsed, trapping people inside.
North Korea drew condemnation today after its latest round of missile firings. The North launched two short-range missiles into the sea off Japan. That followed the launch of an intercontinental ballistic missile on Saturday. In response, the U.N. Security Council called an emergency meeting in New York today. The U.S. criticized Russia and China for opposing new sanctions. The Council's lack of action is worse than shameful. It is dangerous. Now is the time for the Security Council to work together toward a peaceful solution on the Korean Peninsula before it's too late. In Pyongyang, the sister of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un warned the regime will keep using the Pacific as its, quote, firing range unless the U.S. military pulls back in the region. The far-right government in Israel announced an overhaul of the courts today amid mass dissent. Supporters in parliament presented the plan to give the executive branch more power over judges. Outside, tens of thousands of people blocked major highways in Jerusalem in protest. Opponents of the plan say it would upend Israel's system of checks and balances. The U.N. nuclear watchdog says it's asking Iran about signs of uranium being enriched to levels very near nuclear weapons grade. A number of reports today say the International Atomic Energy Agency detected uranium at 84 percent purity at Iranian sites. It takes 90 percent purity to make a bomb. Tehran, in turn, denied the reports and accused the agency of acting in bad faith. Raising such issues in the media, which should normally be discussed in technical communications and bilateral meetings, is a sign of the International Atomic Energy Agency moving away from professionalism and its technical status. Iran abandoned curbs on its nuclear activities after then-President Trump pulled the U.S. out of the 2015 nuclear deal. In southeast Brazil, hundreds of rescuers searched today for dozens of people missing after extreme rains. The weekend deluge killed at least 40 people. Nearly 24 inches of rain in 24 hours swamped streets, while in rural areas, mudslides washed away entire roads. Officials say more than 1,700 people have been displaced. Back in this country, classes resumed at Michigan State University a week after a mass shooting there killed three students. At the same time, students, local leaders and activists gathered outside the state capitol in nearby Lansing to demand strict new gun laws. For too long in Michigan, parents have waited and waited for politicians to put our children's safety first, except that too many of those politicians were in the pockets of the gun lobby while generations of children experienced the trauma of lockdown drills and worse, actual shootings. Three of the five students who were wounded in those shootings remain in critical condition. In Southern California, a suspect has been arrested in the shooting death of Roman Catholic Bishop David O'Connell. His body was found at his home in Los Angeles County on Saturday. Last night, community members held a vigil, expressing condolences and reciting prayers. Bishop O'Connell was 69 years old. The Transportation Security Administration reports it intercepted a record number of guns at U.S. airports last year, more than 6,500. That works out to about 18 per day. The number of guns found at TSA checkpoints has been steadily rising since 2010. The only exception was 2020, when travel slowed during the pandemic. And prosecutors in New Mexico have refiled involuntary manslaughter charges against Alec Baldwin in a movie set shooting in 2021. He will now face a maximum 18 months in prison instead of five years if he's convicted. His lawyers argued the longer sentence requirement became law only after the shooting. Baldwin was rehearsing with a revolver that turned out to contain real bullets when it went off and killed a crew member. Still to come on the news hour, despite nationwide rejection, election deniers hold critical positions in Republican politics. Actor Michelle Yeoh discusses her Oscar-nominated performance in Everything Everywhere All at Once. Animal shelters struggle as many pets adopted during the pandemic are returned. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. 
This week, we will mark one year since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine with a series of stories. Tonight, the drone war. Nick Schifrin and videographer Eric O'Connor recently traveled to frontline units in Donetsk province and report on Ukraine's effort to modernize a war that's often seemed an echo from last century. In the forest outside Bakhmut, where two soldiers fight on their own, the sounds of war haven't changed for centuries. The Ukrainian soldiers fight with the weapons of yesterday and today. They launch their $10,000 Chinese drone up and over the trees they use for cover to hunt for Russian troops. It's the 21st century version of forward observing. The drone locates a Russian target and relays its location to the brigade's artillery commander. Before the war, the 33-year-old pilot was an engineer, which is his nickname that he asked us to use. Commander of our artillery sees this screen too, like monitor all the time. And from different angles, from different uh, drones, they can react fast and quickly. And it takes approximately three to five minutes. Three to five minutes from yeah, the yeah. time that you spot yeah, yeah. them until the time they can fire. Yeah, yeah. Even faster. We're about a mile and a half here from the front line. We've heard distant artillery, even small arms all morning. And this drone unit, just the two of them, operate completely isolated, separate from their unit. They called their drone an angel in the sky. On this day, his drone filmed as a Russian helicopter fired on Ukrainian troops. But he gave us other videos from the Battle of Kherson, where he called in the location of Russian tanks so one could be hit with a Ukrainian strike. They high weapons, high tanks, and we are like looking for like our missions to find and give coordinates. Um, easy to say, yeah, but a little bit harder to be seen. In wars gone by, snipers hunted for other snipers. In this war, drone pilots hunt each other. While you're using drones on the Russians, or the Russians using drones on you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, looking out for us too, and it's like a huge luck if you find another pilot. Sometimes we <laughs> hunting in each other. Because if you're not able to see what is the situation, uh, you are not, your artillery is, is done, it's not working. You're blind? Yeah, yeah. So when you're not flying, you yeah. spend time in the bunker? Yeah, yeah, we sleep in the bunker. <laughs> They've been using this location for months, thanks to this bunker they happened to cross. He shows us some Ukrainian hospitality, thanks to a butane stove and some bottled water. It was a quick way to make a tea. He shows me how Ukrainians try to detect Russian drones. The Russians have their own countermeasures. And it's automatically detect your drones and shut down signal. Oh, so, it? so it's jammers. Yeah, it's really harmful when you lost your drone. It's like you use your friend, maybe, I would say. Really sad moment because it's like you have some connection. I would say you, you, you are, it's like your partner. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Some partners have been around longer than others. This Ukrainian drone model has been flying since Russia's initial 2014 invasion. It's not as fancy, it specializes in photos. But its operators consider it older and wiser, much like they consider themselves. Their unit name loosely translates to old fogies. 59-year-old Commander Igor was retired and volunteered the day of the invasion. At the start of the war, the Russians had more artillery and drones. But now this balance has changed, and I can feel it every day, and we're better. Vitaly, the pilot, is 51. He grew up in far western Ukraine, flying model airplanes. Ever since I was six, my hobby was airplane modeling. So in 2015, when I was called up, I understood that I could contribute the most by becoming a drone pilot. They're far from a main road, but not from the artillery that they're helping to aim. Each surveillance flight lasts about an hour. The only way to know what the drone has seen is by manually opening it and removing its memory card, which promptly goes into the van. We can't show the screen right now, but you're looking through photos that the drone has taken to reveal Russian locations. What can you do with those photos? 
It gives us information of quantity of military equipment, type of military equipment, and this gives us the ability to decide to target immediately with the help of artillery or take additional actions. To send their images and guarantee communications, they rely on Starlink, owned by SpaceX CEO Elon Musk, despite SpaceX threats to cut them off. I think that Elon Musk is part of our crew, our team. So I don't think that he will block it, and we can constantly feel his support. Does the use of drones go both ways? Is it like a cat and mouse game? We don't see significant changes in Russian drones, except for the Iranian Shahids. That's a reference to Iranian-made Russian attack drones. They've struck the country's infrastructure and alongside Russian missiles have challenged Ukraine's air defenses. Senior U.S. and NATO officials tell PBS NewsHour Ukraine will run out of its mostly Soviet-era air defense within months. So the West is building a Western-only air defense system, including American Patriots. The National Advanced Surface-to-Air Missile System, the same system that defends Washington, as well as European systems, including from Germany and France. President Volodymyr Zelensky said this past weekend it would work. I believe that today, in terms of air defense systems, we are probably at the best level since our independence. But back in the van near the front, the team using old Ukrainian technology believes the West needs to accelerate its assistance. It would be nice if Europe and America would try and help finish this war as soon as possible, because it's up to them how quickly we can evict the invader from our land. They have no faith that can be accomplished soon, so they prepare for the next mission and help their comrades fight a grinding ground war with their eyes in the sky. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Nick Schifrin, outside Bakhmut, Ukraine. Teenage girls in the U.S. are experiencing record high levels of violence and sadness. That is according to a recent CDC report. Stephanie Sy dives into the numbers, the scope and the significance of the problem. The CDC has been conducting this survey every couple years for three decades, and this new report is the first to measure the well-being of the nation's youth since the pandemic started. In 2021, the CDC saw an increase of mental health challenges across the board, but as one official said, it's girls in the U.S. that are engulfed in a growing wave of sadness, violence, and trauma. Nearly three in five teen girls reported feeling persistent sadness and hopelessness, double the rate of boys. 25% of girls reported having made a suicide plan. And 14% reported having been forced to have sex, a 4% rise since the last survey. What's more, 22% of teenagers that identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or questioning have attempted suicide in the past year. For a look at how we got here and what can be done, I'm joined by Sharon Hoover, co-director of the National Center for School Mental Health and professor of psychiatry at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Sharon Hoover, thanks for joining the news. I want to jump right in because there's so many topics. The decline of youth mental health goes back at least a decade, but the numbers of girls reporting how much they're suffering really stands out in this report. Why do things seem to be getting worse for teen girls? That's right. I mean, I have to say we are not surprised to see increases in mental health challenges. We have seen these trends happening for the past several years, as you said. But it was quite surprising in some respects to see the stark gender difference that we saw. And, and as you said, this is the first national look that we've had since the pandemic. And so it gives us a bit of insight into maybe how boys and girls and different folks have experienced the pandemic differently. Why are we looking at this gender gap? Why are girls suffering so much? There's a lot of speculation right now, now that we've seen this stark difference between girls and boys. One of the hypotheses is that girls were more socially isolated and may rely more on their peers for self-confidence, for self-esteem, for just their general well-being. And they also been, been, 
have more likely to actually spend time on social media and not just spend time on it, but time that is excessive and may reach the threshold of making them at greater risk for anxiety and depression. The CDC, um, Sharon, says schools are on the front line of this crisis, and that's your area of expertise. What is the role of schools in addressing hopelessness, and are they equipped for that task? Yeah, so I was pleased to see the CDC come out and say that schools need to be a really critical part of how we address this. You know, many of us have said that we can't simply treat our way out of this youth mental health crisis. There's not enough providers and it really isn't the right approach. You know, I often talk about how if we saw 60% of our young people being injured in car accidents, the solution would not be to simply hire more physicians in the emergency department. Rather, we would take a public health approach. We would take a look at how can we better equip cars? How can we look at the driving age? And similarly, we really need to be taking a public health approach to what's happening with our young people. And one of the most essential places to do that is in schools. The CDC has long said that we need to be looking at efforts to promote school connectedness and belongingness. And when we actually make a concerted effort and investment in those types of positive youth development approaches, we actually see improvements in school connectedness and impact on youth mental health. So I absolutely think it's the right way to go in terms of the fix here, or at least one part of the resolution to this. I want to come back to what was most startling to me about this report, which is that 14 percent of teenage girls report being forced to have sex, um, that they are experiencing rape and violence at much higher rates. Um, those things would obviously impact mental health. But shouldn't the headline be girls are being targeted and raped at alarming rates? And what is being done about the perpetrators of such crimes? It was odd to me to see that grouped in with mental health challenges. Right. Well, we know the two are related, of course, as you said. If you're experiencing sexual assault, you're at much greater risk for mental health challenges. But absolutely, there needs to be a headline just calling out what's happening to our young girls. We've seen a dramatic increase in their self-reported incidents of sexual assault. And it is startling. The numbers are, are really concerning. And there are measures that can be put in place, again, many of those at the school level, to help our young people navigate relationships and to really prevent some of the sexual assault that we're seeing. The numbers are striking. Finally, Sharon, this CDC report enforces previous research that has shown how lesbian, gay, and questioning youth are reporting substantially worse well-being, including also being more likely to experience violence. Given how there are school boards that are literally fighting over gender identity curriculum, are they even less likely to get their mental health needs met today? It's one of our greatest worries that some of the controversy right now and some of the legislation and just discussion even at the school board level about making our environments and our schools less inclusive for LGBTQ plus youth could really negatively impact this group of students who are already vulnerable. We know that LGBTQ youth are much more at risk of suicidality, of depression and anxiety. And we also know that there are solutions that can be put in place to help them with not only getting mental health supports, but also at a more public health level to really make schools a more inclusive, accepting place where they can feel that they belong. And we're very concerned about some of the legislation that we're seeing, some of the actions by school boards to make their schools less inclusive, which we feel and, and the data would support puts them at greater risk of mental health concerns. Sharon Hoover with the National Center for School Mental Health. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Voters in the battleground state of Wisconsin will head to the polls tomorrow for a crucial primary race. Jeff Bennett took a closer look earlier today. Omna, what would normally be a little-noticed judicial election in Wisconsin is now a high-stakes battle for control of the state's Supreme Court, a race that's expected to shape abortion rights in Wisconsin and could help decide the outcome of the 2024 presidential election in one of the nation's most closely divided battlegrounds. Zach Schultz is a reporter for PBS Wisconsin and is following this race. So, Zach, first, help us understand why this Wisconsin Supreme Court race is so critical. Why does it matter on a national level? 
Well, right now, the court is uh, have a 4-3 majority for the conservatives, uh, more of the Republican-leading members of the court. And there, this could flip it the other way. If uh, one of the liberal candidates running wins, then for the first time ever, Democratic supporters feel they would have a good shot at winning some cases. But why it may matter nationally and uh, in 2024 has to do with 2020, as a lot of things point back to. Wisconsin was one of the states where Donald Trump's campaign filed lawsuits to try and essentially overturn the results of the election. They tried to throw out uh, tens of thousands of absentee ballots from Dane and Milwaukee counties to Democratic strong. And if the Supreme Court at that time had decided to take that case and rule in his favor, then it likely would have flipped the outcome of Wisconsin, which was decided to drive around 20,000 votes total. So the court watchers are always looking at what's the makeup of the court, how conservative are these justices, and what might happen down the road with some of these uh, big issues. Tomorrow's primary will feature two conservatives and two liberals, as you well know, running for the seat of a retiring conservative justice. And this race is nonpartisan, but the candidates have really staked out clear ideological positions, some of which they expressed in interviews with you. Obviously, I have to follow the law, but people are very, very concerned about a wide variety of issues. They're concerned about women's right to choose. They're concerned about fair maps. They're concerned about community safety. They're concerned about clean water. They're concerned about marriage equality. If you think as a candidate that you should be virtue signaling to attract the votes of a certain body of, uh, of Wisconsinites, what you're telling them is that you are, not, uh, you are not committed to the constitutional order. And you're telling them that, uh, that politics should have a role uh, in the court. Zach Schultz, tell us more about these candidates and what you learned from your interviews with them. Well, there are two liberal-aligned candidates and two conservative-aligned candidates in this race. And 15 years ago, they were a little more cautious in running for the court about being public about where they would stand. And now we're pretty much nonpartisan in name only. The parties are heavily involved in these races. So on the liberal side, we heard from Janet Protasiewicz, who's one of the liberals. She's from Milwaukee County. She's been very open talking about that uh, Wisconsin's legislative maps are gerrymandered. Uh, conservatives say she's actively calling for that case to come to the court if she wins. Uh, there's also a Judge Everett Mitchell, who is from Dane County. He's running on more of a social justice platform, trying to gain attention. He hasn't raised as much money, so his profile is not nearly as high outside of his home area. On the conservative side, we heard from Daniel Kelly, who was actually a former justice on the court. He was appointed and then lost his reelection bid in 2020. And he says that had to do more with uh, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders being on the same ballot the same day for the Democratic primary in the 2020 presidential race. And then finally, Jennifer Doro is another conservative, and she gained a lot of attention by presiding over a very high profile court case recently of a man who drove a car through the Waukesha Christmas parade a couple years ago. And so she gained a lot of notoriety from that. So that's our that's our four. One indication of how much is at stake is the outside money, the millions upon millions of dollars being spent. And is it right that there is more outside money being spent in this race than the candidates are spending themselves? By the end, that will certainly be the case. Right now, there's still Wisconsin money that's been in play early on. But uh, Daniel Kelly, who we heard from one of the conservatives, already has said that he's got more than $20 million in outside uh, special interest funding lined up, ready to be in play for him if he makes it through this primary. Uh, we've seen heavy fundraising by both the Democratic Party, which they expect to spend, and some other liberal-aligned groups groups that they'll be putting in play. And yes, yeah, some of the candidates are raising 20000 at a pop from out-of-state people that are, once they learn about this race, they're deciding this is where they want to invest their money this spring. The two top finishers will advance to the general election in April. What's the level of awareness? What's the level of enthusiasm among Wisconsin voters right now for this race in particular? Well, for this race, it's starting to heat up. Of course, for people that actually follow politics closely in Wisconsin, this has been on the radar actually for a couple of years. For, for us political junkies, we've known this race was coming and that it had the ideological balance of the court hanging. And it's been waking up everyone else. But it's starting to become more aware as you travel around the state to areas that kind of like to turn off once the presidential or the gubernatorial elections are done in the fall. They're becoming aware that the, the level of money from the outside is penetrating down to them through radio ads that they're not 
not expecting to hear this time of year. Television ads are starting to go. So we're not sure. This won't be high profile, especially for a February primary. But by April, we're expecting pretty good turnout, especially for a Supreme Court race. Zach, is there a sense of who is leading this race? Well, we can look at the dollars and we can say that Janet Protasiewicz on the liberal side is definitely way ahead. She's been fundraising. She was first on the air. And for a low profile race like that, that's very important. She's already lined up a lot of key Democratic Party endorsements. On the conservative side, there's been a little bit of a battle between the two with a uh, Daniel Kelly actually accusing Jennifer Doro of not being conservative enough or saying that she could you know, not be aligned with the full conservative interests if she made it to the court. So there's been a lot of inter-party fighting, which has made more Republicans aware because talk radio in Wisconsin has gotten heavily invested in the outcome on that end. Zach Schultz with PBS Wisconsin. Zach, thanks for sharing your reporting with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Over the weekend, Republicans in the key state of Michigan voted to make a well-known election denier their new party chairman. Christina Caramo ran on her doubts of the 2020 election process and her refusal to concede her own loss for secretary of state last year. And she's not the only new party chair fanning those flames. Our Lisa Desjardins joins us with more. Lisa, good to see you. Good to see you. So Christina Caramo's not the only one. Where else are we seeing election deniers run Republican state parties. Let's take you through the map and these each of these candidates is a little bit different now party chairman first Christina Caramo as you said in Michigan this was Saturday night that she was elected um, in a contentious election in Michigan but then after that let's look at Kansas there are men named Mike Brown is the new party chairman he was elected a week ago he ran ads last year in his secretary of state bid questioning the 2020 election and raising that debunked Dominion voting idea. That was part of his failed campaign for Secretary of State, now the party chairman in Kansas. Then let's go to two others who are not outright deniers, but someone who, these are pe folks who have raised doubts or allowed these doubts to fester. Uh, there you see in Florida, the new Florida Republican chairman, Christian Ziegler. He is someone who says he wants to move forward, move past 2020. He was at the January 6th rally in Washington, but he condemned the actions that day later on. Then in Arizona, another swing state, Jeff DeWitt, similarly a former top Trump official. He was elected party chairman there three weeks ago. He beat an outright election denier. So in some places, this is a question of how far right you are. Mm -hmm. But he is someone who overtly has gone out of his way to not answer questions about whether 20 or 20, 2020 election was legitimate or not. Tell me more about Christina Caramo yeah. in Michigan, though, because she lost her race for secretary yeah. of state. Why would Republicans put her in charge there? These are important races because in part of the 2024 election cycle, this is a big swing state. She ran specifically on a platform of not trusting the Republican Party, not trusting government. I want to play a clip that, of her speech in the nominating uh, contest this weekend. We need to fight to secure our elections. It's the reason I did not concede after the 2022 election. Why would I concede to a fraudulent process? Now, if you look at what was going on in Michigan over the weekend in that state party convention, there were three ballots, and it was described as, in part, chaotic, rowdy. Um, she raised not only questions about 2020 and 2022, but about this election also. The process there in this weekend's vote was called into question. They had to do hand counts. That is part of this movement, saying all voting should be by hand and counted by hand. And that won out with the faithful there in Michigan. Now, I want to raise that she also really seemed to edge out another competitor who was also a very overt election denier by talking about Judeo-Christianity, by being a Christian nationalist especially. We reached out to her. Um, her past claims have been debunked, including a lawsuit that was rejected by a judge saying there was no evidence at all. He was saying that it was dramatically devoid of evidence. Mm -hmm. Her campaign and folks did not respond to us. Um, but, you know, in Michigan, this is something that I think we're going to have to watch as she just becomes the party chairman just in the last couple of days and hours. So you've been talking to strategists and lawmakers connected to all of these states, Republicans in particular. Mm -hmm. What do they make of this? 
Republicans, it depends on the state. In Florida, for example, they say they've made gains. They feel good about where their party at, is at in general compared to these other states where we've seen them lose races with these kinds of candidates. Michigan, for example, we know of at least one congressional seat that Republicans feel they should have had, but they nominated someone who was a denier last time. Mm -hmm. There is concern there. One Michigan Republican told me even they're concerned this has become a cult-like atmosphere. And that's coming from a real conservative from that state. What about Democrats? They've long denied, said this is a danger to democracy, this kind of That's election right. denials. And what are they saying? I think there's concerns about democracy from both parties, but Democrats are waiting to see. They are wondering if perhaps Christina Caramo, who was not endorsed by Trump this time around, mm -hmm. indicates the base is moving even past Trump. It's a little bit chaotic, but Democrats do have some more hope from the Senate races because Michigan, Arizona, those are places that they don't mind weaker Republican parties. What about Republicans in Congress when it comes to yeah. these false claims about 2020 election fraud? No one, I think, has been more concerned about this, but probably said less than the Republicans in Congress, who arguably believe that they lost the U.S. Senate because of election deniers and should have had a bigger majority in the House. Now, there are few of them that are still denying the election. There are a couple, though. Paul Gosar, just in December, retweeted something from President Trump saying it was time to terminate the Constitution. But apart from all of that, I think it's important to remind folks that the temperatures on the Hill are trying to turn down, even as we see the base temperatures continue to rise. We saw in Fulton County, Georgia last week in that investigation that could include former President Trump, the grand jury there came to this conclusion, which remains one of the bottom lines here, Amna. We find by unanimous vote, the grand jury wrote that no widespread fraud took place in their case in Georgia 2020. However, Republican Party chairmen now are still raising that false claim critical issues. I'm so glad you're covering it all. Lisa Desjardins, thank you so much. Thank you. The film with the most Oscar nominations this year, Everything Everywhere All at Once, became a surprise breakout hit for audiences and critics. This weekend, at the Directors Guild of America Awards, the film's directors won for Best Theatrical Feature. The movie's star, Michelle Yeoh, has already nabbed a Golden Globe Award and now has a chance to make history as the first Asian woman to win an Oscar for Best Actress. Jeffrey Brown talks to Yeoh for our Arts and Culture series, can. Mrs. Wang, are you with us? I am paying attention. Everything Everywhere All at Once. A wild title, a wild and hard to characterize movie. It's part sci-fi, action film, comedy, family drama, in which a woman named Evelyn Wong, a Chinese-American immigrant whose life is a string of problems with her husband, her daughter, her failing laundromat, and the IRS, suddenly finds herself the only person who can save the universe from disaster. And not just this universe, but an entire multiverse of alternative lives. It's weird, it's wacky, it's wonderful. Just strap on your safety belt and go on this crazy ride with Evelyn Wong because she's just going to blow your mind. You still went looking for me? Michelle Yeoh stars as Evelyn, and the role is broader in Oscar nomination. The movie, co-directed by Daniel Scheinert and Daniel Kwan, together known as The Daniels, is up for Best Film and a slew of other awards, including Best Director and three Supporting Actor nominations. And it's been an unexpected box office hit. Speaking from London recently, where she's filming a movie version of Wicked, Yo said part of Everything Everywhere's secret is its playful twist on who gets to be the superhero. And that was what I found so charming about this movie. It was shining a light on a very ordinary woman that you would pass by on the streets, you would see in the supermarket. You know, you probably won't even give her a second glance. But then at the end of the day, she finds her superpowers, which we all have, which is kindness and love and compassion. Not to mention a pretty good punch. Yo, now 60, has had a storied career for decades, first attracting international attention in 1992's Super Cop with Jackie Chan. She took a memorable motorbike ride with Pierce Brosnan in the 1997 James Bond film Tomorrow Never Dies. And she soared and fought in courtyards and across rooftops in 2000's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. 
Michelle right here. Born in Malaysia and trained first as a dancer, she's a rare combination of grace and power, elegance and action. Coming up in the Hong Kong film world, she says, she learned firsthand to do her own martial arts and other action scenes. It was very, very risky because all the stunts were done real. You know, when they say jump off the roof, they jumped off the roof. You know, and then I will never forget when, when the stunt coordinator said to the stuntman who was bouncing off the, the railings and staircase, and he said, that was too comfortable. I'm like, how did bouncing off the staircase look comfortable? But what he meant was like, it didn't have that boom, boom, pa. And I, I wanted to show that women need to be strong and independent and physically capable to, to, to do this. You, you know, you have, you have spoken about as you age as a woman, as an actor, the roles perhaps change, they might become more limited. What I was most opposed to, much as I love my superhero guys, is like, why do they get to rescue, go out and save the world? And they'll do it with my daughter and not me. So, you know, it's like, no, 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 no. I refuse, I don't want, I would like to be given the opportunities. Yo has also helped lead the way in a change in Hollywood that's brought Asian actors to the forefront, notably in the 2018 blockbuster, Crazy Rich Asians. When Crazy Rich Asians came out in 2018, it sort of lit a fire and say, please look at us. We can be leading men and actresses. We can be funny and we can be this and we can be that. It's just like embrace us and give us the opportunity. You, you now have the opportunity to become the first Asian woman to win the Oscar for Best Actress. How important would that be for you? You know, when I was told, I think it, I, I sort of ping-ponged against being shocked. Like, no, it can't be. I mean, all of us said, are you serious? Because I know of such amazing, great actresses that came before me. So how is that even possible? And, you know, it's like, why have we, it's all we want to know is that be given the privilege to compete, but we can't compete if the roles have not been, been forthcoming in that way. I mean, my ideal world is after this is to see that when is it, for example, Wicked, I'm playing Madame Morabal, a role that has always been a Caucasian woman's role. And our dream is there will be no more roles written only specifically as an Asian, as an African-American, as a this, as a that. But if you are capable of doing it, you should be given the opportunity to have that privilege. And I hope, I hope this, this just changes everything. It has to. It's a complicated moment, even as everything, everywhere, all at once, and other films begin to change the cultural landscape, violence against Asian Americans has grown in this country, and global tensions between the U.S. and China rise. If you think about how long it has taken, as you say, for recognition for an Asian actress, actress like yourself. Do you see Hollywood really changing, diversifying in the storytelling, the faces, the people telling the stories? Well, if they didn't change, I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be here having you say Oscar nominated. I wouldn't, we wouldn't have a movie that was so authentic in the, for the, an Asian immigrant family and so loved and embraced today. So yes, I believe that we have made leaps and bounds in change, and but we can't just sit back and say, okay, we've done it. We have to keep evolving, we have to keep pushing the envelope, and we should do that together. Michelle Yeoh is now saving this and other universes in movie theaters around the country. She vies for an Academy Award on March 12th. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Jeffrey Brown.
rescue shelters are feeling the pressure these days. Too many potential pets, not enough people adopting them. Inflation has made owning and caring for a pet more expensive, leaving some owners struggling to afford rising costs. Our deputy senior producer of National Affairs, Courtney Norris, and associate producer Dorothy Hastings have this story. America's animal shelters are in crisis. Many are at capacity and understaffed with adoptions lagging. In fact, animals are sitting in shelters for longer stints of time than they have in four years. At the Humane Rescue Alliance in Washington, D.C., CEO Lisa LaFontaine has seen a dramatic decrease in adoptions over the last three years. Our intake of animals um, is up 4% but our adoptions of animals are down 10%. And like many other shelters, LaFontaine has seen some owners return dogs, cats, and even bunnies. She's had to get creative to ensure pets don't come back here. If your animal has a minor medical condition and you can't get a bed appointment or can't afford it, you can bring the animal to us. We have wonderful, a wonderful hospital here and our doctors will treat your pet and you can pick them back up. And last year, we were able to keep 642 animals with their people, with the families who already love them. Roughly 200 animals currently await adoption at the Humane Rescue Alliance, like this dog, Maccabee, who thought our microphone was his new chew toy. At a recent adoption event they hosted, Taylor and her boyfriend, Nicholas, welcomed the newest member of their family. I'm working well, so that makes a huge difference. Yeah, I feel like we can like, maybe make sure that she feels comfortable and just be around all the time, which makes, I, I just love that. But many Americans are returning to the office, making it a difficult time to own a pet. 23 million U.S. households adopted a pet during the pandemic. But as inflation continues to squeeze the wallets of Americans, rescue shelters and organizations are tasked not only with getting more animals into homes, but keeping them there. And it's a national problem. According to a recent Forbes survey, 44% of pet owners in the past year have had to pull out their credit card to pay for their pet's expenses. There's no question that pet ownership is getting more and more expensive and some folks on the lower end of the income spectrum are just going to get priced out. Matt Schultz is chief credit analyst at LendingTree. According to one of their surveys last fall, a quarter of owners are struggling to afford the cost of their pet amid inflation, and nearly one in four have taken on debt from pet care. And less populated areas are hit even harder. In Dumfries, Virginia, an hour outside of D.C., Sherry Turner runs the Humane Society of Northern Virginia. Lately, the request from owners looking to rehome pets is exceeding the number of adopters. This pup, Ellie, was recently surrendered. Her owner could not afford to pay for her medical needs. Rescues are expected or shelters are expected to go and pick up that slack and pay for whatever wasn't done medically and, and to work with the training just so that they can be adoptable. Those are some of the impacts that we, that we see and we feel. Virginia-based rescue, Lucky Dog, has no shelter. They partner with organizations like PetSmart to host adoption events. Lucky Dog director Myra Horowitz has seen some adopters struggle. Maybe they've lost their job or something has happened and they're asking us to take the animal back. We always to try to help people find a solution before we actually do take the animal back, but sometimes there's just unfortunately no other thing they can do. For Horowitz, the goal is to keep animals out of kill shelters and the stakes are high. In 2021, for the first time in five years, the number of dogs and cats euthanized in the U.S. actually increased, and that trend continued last year. But despite the setbacks, shelters and rescues continue to save countless lives, volunteering their time to give these furry friends a new beginning. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Courtney Norris. It's enough to make you want to bring another dog into your home. Just kidding, honey. You can learn more about those pets and the challenges animal shelters are facing online at pbs.org newshour.
and tomorrow night. Be sure to tune in. Jeff Bennett will be in East Palestine, Ohio, speaking with Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw in one of his first national interviews to talk about the train derailment that's caused havoc for residents for more than two weeks. And that is the NewsHour for tonight. I'm Amna Nawaz. On behalf of the entire NewsHour team, thank you for joining us.